This is a podcast from Nordic Center in Shanghai. Located at Fudan University, Nordic Center is a platform for education and research collaboration between the five Nordic countries and China. And in this podcast, we showcase some of our activities in various academic fields. The following is a recording of a public lecture held at Nordic Center on October 17th, 2017, by Professor of Legal Culture Hanna Pedersen from the University of Copenhagen. It explores conceptions of welfare and well-being in different legal cultures, with a focus on Greenland and China, and in doing so, explores a range of ideas about community, harmony, and relationships between man and nature in these vastly different places. Welcome to Nordic Center,、uh, and today I'm、uh, very happy to introduce Hannah Pedersen. Uh, who is a professor of legal culture at the University of Copenhagen, which is, of course, one of our、uh, member universities of Nordic Center.、Uh, and、uh, Hanna Pedersen is,、uh, of course, a law professor, but someone who works quite interdisciplinarily、uh, and has worked on a range of different、uh, subjects with different perspectives. And I think ranging from gender studies to Arctic studies and climate change. So even for people like me who aren't really <laughs> legal scholars or even legal students, law students, it's going to be very exciting to hear. So please give her a warm hand of applause today. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for、uh, allowing me to、uh, come here to the Nordic Center, where I've been several times before, had the pleasure of participating in in seminars in this meeting in this room. Uh, and to、uh, and to give this lecture, I、uh, I am here because I am at pre- not as 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 Martin uh, said. Uh, of course, Copen the University of Copenhagen has relations to Fudan,、uh, to the Nordic Center, but also to Fudan. But I'm actually not a visiting scholar at Fudan at the moment. I'm a visiting scholar at a university called Shanghai University of Political Science and Law, which is. Time-wise, quite far from here. Not so far in kilometers, but time-wise,、uh, it is. It's far. It's in. So I live in the woods. I feel like I'm a tourist. Actually, I live near the Catholic Cathedral and the observatory.、Um, so it's in a very in a place for well-being, you could say, of today. That is to go to somewhere peaceful and green. Uh, I uh, I am going to speak today. About、uh, a project I、uh, worked, I've worked on for some time. I collected material for this project when I was in China on a longer stay in 2015 on、uh, these relations of welfare, well-being, and harmony in world society, combining or contrasting, you could say,、uh, China, Greenland, and Denmark, and I did so. Because I、uh, lived for、uh, lived and worked in Greenland for four years, and then I returned to the University of Copenhagen, where I come from, and then had a transatlantic professorship in Copenhagen about Greenland. So I traveled back and forth over time distances and uh, thousands uh, of kilometers several times a year to teach Greenlandic students, which I had already t-、uh, taught before. Uh, so that is the、uh, this is the background of of the project I formulated at that time and my interest in in legal culture as a、uh, as a law professor also there are not many professors of legal culture I think I'm the only one in Denmark 
maybe uh, one of the few in the world, really. Uh, but I think, especially for China, uh, legal culture has always been of interest because the Chinese normative culture, as the Greenlandic normative culture, is different from the Western legal culture. So, um, and, and, and the reason I came to work with uh, the relation between China and Greenland was actually through a young Greenlandic lawyer in Copenhagen who was interested in Greenland for reasons of investment, for reasons of Chinese investments in, uh, in Greenland. So that has sort of brought me from Greenland to, to China. Uh, where I had already been a number of times, the first time in 1979. These are entities which are very diverse, you could say. Very, very diverse. So, in a way, I am not going to compare here because I don't think it really makes sense to compare such different entities. Uh, I think <coughs> that you can, to a certain extent, contrast and you can see what I, I wrote this morning, the big in the small and the small in the big. I actually received a mail yesterday from a young Chinese PhD I met two years ago, and he said, I have seen on WeChat that you're going to give a lecture tomorrow at Fudan. Okay, I thought. This sounds like Greenland. Everybody knows everybody else, and everybody knows who, who and where everybody else is. So I thought that, and I don't know how, exactly how WeChat works, but I was a bit surprised to find out that somebody in Tianjin would know about this lecture. Um, but uh, I think it is, and uh, that is, a, to a certain extent, an, ex an, an, uh, an example of the small and the big. It's huge but you don't have to take many WeChat steps to get to somebody who knows somebody else. Uh, so, um, I have, especially in the years I worked with Greenland, looked a lot at maps, especially maps with different perspectives from this one. Maps with polar perspectives, map, maps, Every, every, every people look at the world from their own perspective. So if you look at Chinese maps, of course, China will be the center of the world. If you look at European maps, Europe will be at the center of the world. If you go to the Arctic, the Arctic will be the center of the world. So, uh, so this is a typical Western-centric map. Uh, what you have here... And what I, what I asked the students about when I gave a similar lecture to this uh, last week was what is the difference between this map, which is quite old, as you can see, from 1973, and today. And I can tell you another thing about this map. This is a tapestry. It was woven. It is a piece of art. It is this Arte Povera group, which is an Italian uh, group of artists in the 70s. So they, and one of these artists had woven these maps of the world in order to map the differences. Where would you think a map like, like this could have been uh, woven? Where, was it, where would a map like this be produced? Where do they make tapestries in the world? Indian. Indian? Close. Very close. Very close. Other suggestions? 
Even closer? Afghanistan. Yes, <laughs> Afghanistan. This is a map made in Afghanistan in uh, the 1970s, early 1970s. I think that's also, given how the world has changed, especially in that region, I think that's also very, very interesting. And of course, you can see that the world has changed enormously. Where does it? Here. Huh? This is not the map you see today, of course. The collapsed Soviet Union has splintered into many smaller states. So that is, uh, that is a part of the world where recent changes have had an enormous impact after 73. But this is also a part of the world where changes have taken place very rapidly. And in a way, this is what I see as some of the links of these dif very different and very diverse parts of the world. They have all been subject to enormously rapid and quite dramatic changes. Everybody knows that China has gone through enormous changes after 78. Everybody knows that the, that the Soviet Union collapsed and has gone through enormous changes after 89. Not everybody knows that Greenland got home rule, what is called home rule, in 79, and has developed rapidly. They always speak about rapid change in that part of the world, in the Arctic, and that northern Canada, the, uh, the, the area where the uh, Inuktitut, which is... Uh, which means humans uh, live, that that has also changed dramatically. So if you would have a map of this, uh, this kind today, so many years later, you would have a Greenlandic flag here, which is more like the Japanese, which you can hardly see, and a, uh, a, uh, uh, a map for Nuna, or, or a flag for Nunavut, which is more like the flags of the Aborigines in, the, in Australia, which do not even have a map here or, or a flag here in, in, uh, in 1973. And flags are, of course, symbols, but they are very important symbols. I mean, you're not supposed to desecrate these almost sacred uh, symbols. So they tell you something about entities which have changed. And what does that to do with welfare and well-being? Well, welfare was related to different communities, to families, very much so, to local communities, to religions, to professions, and to nations. And all these, all these flags represent and resemble, symbolize nations. So what you have here in this area up here are not nations in the, the international law sense, but they are areas which now have their own uh, political systems, uh, legislative, uh, etc., their own, their own symbols and their own, rep uh, since, in, since the beginning of this century, representations in the UN, in the Indigenous Peoples Forum. So a lot of forms of representation have, have uh, changed. And as these change, also symbols change. What produces welfare in these very diverse parts of the world? This is a very old photograph. I do, I do not know exactly how old it is, but since the photograph itself as a instrument is probably not much more than 130 years old at the most, 
the, I would think this is from the beginning of the 20th century. This could be a picture from the beginning of the 20th century. I don't know if you can see it, but it says these are Greenlandic women carrying an umiak, which is a specific boat, a specific means of transportation for the nomadic population, which are moving from one part of the, uh, the coast to another. And, and if, you, if you see the way people uh, work in, in and, and, and make their living and make their welfare in the Arctic, they do that by men hunting and women taking care of sewing clothes. If you cannot sew clothes in the Arctic, you cannot survive. It's so cold that you need warm clothes. And this is what the women, uh, it's the women's field of work. And if you, can, if you look closely, you can see all these women are wearing seal skin, uh, seal fur. This is what keeps them warm. What I think it's also an image of welfare as a uh, result of community action. Welfare is not something you produce individually. Welfare is something you produce in a community. And that takes coordinated action and cooperation. So I think you can see historically welfare as an example of cooperation. Cooperation in the family, but also cooperation beyond the family. Because the family itself cannot row a boat like this. It's far too big. You need like, how many? More than 10, 12, 13. Uh, uh, grown-up women, grown-up strong women to produce this type of transportation and welfare. I think this is something uh, uh, to think of uh, generally when we think about welfare, that welfare is related to community and community life in one form or the other, and that community and community life changes. And it changes everywhere. So welfare can, as, as this example shows, uh, be provided by small communities. It doesn't, you, you do not need a very, very big community by, like Shanghai, the size of all the, the, the population of all the Nordic countries, to produce community. Actually, I think you could see Fudan as a community which is producing welfare for its inhabitants, or even parts, smaller parts of Fudan, which could do that. So I, I found this, uh, this quote by this uh, American, probably uh, he's a uh, political scientist when I was working in Greenland many years ago, who writes about a world society that viable political unities can be very small, provided there's a high level of transaction with the wider environment. Communications and not power are the main organizing influence in world society. And that was why I felt when I got this uh, email yesterday from this Chinese guy saying that he knew I would be here. I've never met people who were so communicating as uh, the Greenlanders. They, I mean, they will know everything about everybody who's everywhere because everybody communicates enormously. You stand in line and you wait to get into Canada and wait for the, the customs and everybody will talk to everybody else. That is, that, is, that is a strength, I think, and probably a survival skill 
something needed for survival. You need to know what's going on here. How long will it take you? We were almost late for this lecture. How long will it take you to get from here to there under these conditions today, etc., etc.? So, so, um, so, so, size matters, but it's not necessarily a very big size that matters. It's a viable. It's a viability, I think, of size which matters. Then I think there's something else which I learned in, in, uh, in Greenland and which I, uh, um, I am trying to find out if there is something similar in China. I haven't really found out yet. And that is relationships between humans and nature. Relationships between human and nature is crucial everywhere for welfare and well-being. Actually, when I... When I uh, uh, gave this lecture to the uh, to the class in in, in uh, uh, Shanghai University. Uh, they uh, I asked them what is welfare, and the teacher said, "Welfare is sustainability. Welfare is related to survival." And I think all these many myths which I've been reading in in Greenland about things like this: a woman marrying a war. Why would a woman marry a woman? It's a very, it's for Westerners and perhaps also for Chinese, it's very strange to have somebody marrying a woman. But you have several of these stories. You have this, and these are the myths and legions from Greenland, which I read on my many travels there. The raven, which took a wild goose for wife. This is interspecies the unclean woman who visited bears, the woman who married a fox, the woman who married a shrimp, the raven which proposed to the sparrow, the woman who took a big worm for husband, that was the one you just saw, when worms had faces like humans, and the man who took a fox for wife. Strange, you think, very strange. But of course, every Dane knows the story about the little mermaid. And what is the little mermaid? The Little Mermaid is a, something in between a fish and a human, so probably a result of a marriage between a fish and a human. And I think it's a, it's, it's a reinterpretation, actually, of that story, of the interrelationship between humans and animals, especially sea mammals, in the areas which, like the Nordic countries, are very and, and have always been very dependent on the sea for food, for clothes, for transportation, for elements of welfare. I think that is something, uh, something very important. So if anybody can tell me anything about similar Chinese stories, I would be very happy to hear about that. I, am, I, I think I once came uh, across something similar but uh, so far I've not really heard it, but I've heard it in all of the Mediterranean. I once gave a lecture to, uh, to women and men in uh, Morocco about it, and they were completely fascinated with these stories of interrelationships between humans and animals, which are part of the Greek uh, mythology yeah, also. We do have the, we have the two snake stories, so white snake and the green snake. So it's actually then just a turn to be the, the beautiful ladies. 
Okay, and yeah. He's, he's married with uh, yeah. uh, the young man. Mm, mm. Uh, then there is uh, another, which is from the just the the monk, actually the, the Buddhist monk. Yeah. Because he think she thinks because the this snake is just like the, the monster, so they stop them. Yeah, I'm sure you do because I think all in all societies it reflects this interrelationship yeah. and this interdependence yeah. of uh, of humans and and it's very strange to modern ears, but uh, but I mean look at all the uh, Disney stories and all the Disney films are all about animals and humans in human form so it's not so far away, okay. So what does this say about um, um, uh, legal cultures and welfare? I think if, if again, I'm contrasting these, these parts, the Greenlandic his, uh, uh, history is nomadic. It is at present a post-colonial welfare society very much uh, uh, in in the form of uh, no, the Nordic welfare societies with with uh, with uh, its uh, different systems of many many kinds, and it is increasingly becoming a digital culture. When I came to Greenland in 1995, they had two computers in the whole country, one of them on the university and one at the library, and it was you f it felt like the world opened to everybody. It was a fantastic feeling of, of opening up with uh, through digital culture. I wonder uh, how many computers there would have been in China at nine, in 1995. Would anybody have an idea? Not too uh, many. Not else? too many. Not, not too, too many. many. So even in the universities, yeah. only I think cannot the only just the for example the law schools only just the law school and uh, for the administrations they have. Yeah. The, yeah. And the computer. Yeah. So yeah. for the faculties, no one yeah. has a computer at that time. Yes. But they do start. So yeah, they yeah, yeah. It, yes. They are starting. This is the time when they are starting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, from the 90s onwards. So yes. from the 90s, we are in a way dealing with the digital culture which has to produce welfare yeah. and well being. And I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, but it does, it, it for sure has an impact. On, on uh, welfare. In China, you had the agricultural um, cu culture as we had in Europe and in, in, in Denmark, very, very closely linked to producing food. We had industrial socialism and industrial capitalism very closely linked to producing uh, uh, goods uh, in a specific way, which also influenced the way we understood and the way we, we uh, structured and organized uh, uh, welfare. We, and now we have in, in, in China, perhaps I, maybe you would not call it a post-socialist digital market economy, but you call it at least a socialist uh, market economy. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it's something which is, is also changing. And probably what we could say, what we have in the West, is this uh, this uh, post-industrial digital capitalism. May I ask you a question? Yes, of course. Um, how do you distinguish digital market economy and digital capitalism? I'm not sure I can answer you, uh, very, uh, uh, but I think what when we speak about the digital, we speak about the technology. Yeah. And the technology. 
yeah. the screen, all the screens, screens, screens all over. Yeah. They are, of course, changing our minds, our, our communication. They're changing a lot of things, influencing us. In, so that in a way, I think we are much closer to each other in China and Europe now than we were before the digital era, much closer. Uh, not only physically because it's easier and quicker to travel, but, but also be, because we live with the same technical conditions to a very large degree. I think that we still live in, uh, or I mean there's no, no doubt that we live in, in, in a capitalist, which is a way, in a way a market era in, in the West. Whereas here, the market is more recent. So, but I'm not, I'm, I don't know if you can say that the digital and the market are linked to a very, to a large degree. Maybe they are. I mean, at least you can say that the digital in China only developed after China had opened up and become much more of a market economy. What I actually think about is that uh, having been living here now for about three years, I can say China is more a capitalist economy and society than, De than Denmark is. Denmark is somewhat more a post-socialist. <laughs> <laughs> social post-social democratic, yeah, yes, yeah, as everybody else. democratic, mm -hmm. of course, yes, but still it's, it's even more capitalistic here than it is in Denmark. In Denmark, we have a lot of a lot of things, a lot of those welfare systems, including everybody from the lowest mm. in society mm. to the highest. Yes, yes. And uh, here, yes. it's more survival of the fittest. Yes, yes. I think I will go uh, to my next slide because it's related to that. Mm -hmm. It's related to the 20th century changes of regulations and, and legal cultures in Denmark and the 21st changes. And in the 20th century, we had the social democratic welfare system, less influenced by the market and more by the state and the unions and all these things. And we got taxation systems in 1903. We got a personal taxation system. We got labor law and disputes. We got forms and relations of property which were changed. We got marriage law family and inheritance law, which were changed, voting rights for women, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we got security in relation to health, in relation to unemployment, in relation to old age, to pension, and to death. And we got public child care at a, at a somewhat later stage, in the 70s. But that was the 20th century. We are in the 21st century, also in Europe. And we are also, I think, in Europe and in the Nordic countries seeing these ch changes toward marketization and privatization, individualization, commercialization, globalization, liberalization in education, taxation. We're seeing flex security. We are seeing families in, in, with much higher divorce rates, around 50%. We are seeing individualized Security systems, yes, you still have coverage, yes, for some things, but not for everything. We're seeing contested taxation systems, 
and we are seeing climate change adaptation. We are living on the heritage of this, which is, I think, what you are describing. Mm -hmm. But I think it is something which is strongly challenged by the same um, development of privatization, liberalization, globalization, which has overtaken China and Greenland so much quicker. Changes have been so much more rapid here. Whereas our changes are somewhat slower, but you can see in relation to everything that's happening in Europe, including the, uh, the elections in Austria yesterday, that all that is being undermined. Very much so. So, so to, to some extent, I'm beginning to think we, we are more similar in very many ways. Of course, I, I can see what you mean. I also, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are differences and there are similarities. And you can, you can choose to look for one or for the other. But I think it is very difficult to overlook the fact of, uh, of similarities uh, which are uh, also related to this, uh, uh, this uh, slide which relates to this book by... Uh, it's a book from 2011, by, written by an American geographer called The New North, The World in 2050. And he speaks about the big changes in the world. The demographics, which are the birth rates, the aging and the deaths, which are the same, very much the same all over. The growing demand for natural resources, which is something China feels strongly and goes all over the world, including to Greenland, to get access to the, uh, to the resources. We're seeing climate change, as I think climate change is really the big difference between now and the end of the 19th century. Nobody would speak about climate change at the end of the 19th century. Fossil fuel wasn't, wasn't used, there were, no, there were no cars, there were no airplanes. Climate change is the big issue in this part. Globalization, technology, etc. And these, I think, are areas where we are beginning to experience similarities to a much uh, greater degree. Similarities which uh, will have an impact on our welfare, our welfare systems, and our well-being. So what does that mean? That means that young Greenlanders are not hunters anymore. This is one of my earliest students in Greenland who's become a digital nomad and who is working in this uh, high-tech office in uh, Nuuk on uh, management of the Arctic Metropole, which Nuuk, Nuuk is an Arctic Metropole of 16,000 people, mm -hmm. less than what you have here in Fudan or half of, of, of Fudan. But nonetheless, it is a metropole what does it mean to be a metropole? It means to have the functions. You can be a big city of one million and you don't have any functions. You don't have education, you don't have parliament, you don't have religion, you don't have culture, you don't have uh, sports, you don't have any of these things which make up a, uh, the, the life and the structure and the welfare of a population. And that, you can, but you can have that in this small community. I think that is something uh, 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 very interesting. So, so this is part of the amazing and rapid change. 
It links Greenland and China, as I've already said, through this resource. It shows you how big Greenland is in relation to, to Europe. And people live in this part of Greenland, most of them, and there are 55,000 of them, all together. All together, we're talking about 55,000 people. So, in terms of population, it's on a global scale, zero. But of course, as you can see, in terms of territory, it is recognizable. It's important. And it is of importance geopolitically, resource-wise, etc., uh, in a much more globalized world, including for China, who decide, uh, defines itself as a near-Arctic state. Not an Arctic state, but a near-Arctic state. Um, so, so, we do have a river connected to that. Of course. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, of course. And if the ice melts, it will influence you. And you know that. Yes, of course it does. I mean, when I was, in, I, I was teaching in Greenland in, in, in 2004, and people were beginning to speak about climate change. And I came back to Copenhagen and said, oh, they are talking about the, the ice is melting and climate change. Climate change, people said, oh, what's that? That's nothing serious. That's, that is only 13 years ago. Yeah. Nobody in Denmark would take it seriously. At, and, and many parts, but that has changed. That has also been a rapid change, I think. So what does this mean uh, for, uh, for legal cultures? This is this was the uh, Chinese mine in, 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 uh, in Greenland. It, it means that we are now in a world where the legal cultures are coming together to a much larger degree and having an impact to a much larger degree, including in relation to what it means to have a good life including what it means to have welfare. Uh, so the Aboriginal worldview, this, this uh, Canadian Aboriginal judge uh, said, I think, uh, sometime in, in the end of last century, the Aboriginal worldview holds that human beings are the least powerful and least important elements in creation. They cannot influence events, and they are disrespectful if they try. Human interests are not to be placed above those of any other part of creation. Regarding the relative hierarchy and importance of beings in creation, therefore, Aboriginal and Western traditions are diametrically opposed. It took me a long time to understand this, because I, in a way I thought Greenland is like Denmark, which, of course, it's not. Be it, amongst others, it's not because there is, you still have this part of the worldview where humans and animals are not, as in the Christian tradition and probably also in the Confucian tradition, they are on different levels. They are on the same level. They marry. They are interdependent. They cannot survive without each other. So that has an impact for how you rule, how you govern, what you consider important. That is a big challenge. That is a big challenge in the meeting between Western, a Western legal culture like the Danish and a, uh, an Aboriginal legal culture like the Greenlandic and the, uh, and the uh, Inuktitut in Canada and uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Indians in Latin America. The only country today to have a... Uh, a um, uh, 
president of uh, indigenous origin is uh, Bolivia. You've probably heard, you may have heard about, uh, about, about the Bolivian president and the, Bolivian, the Bolivians have been very influential in discussing issues of ch a changing understanding and a changing relation to, neighbor, uh, to nature in the UN and inter in international settings because of their background. So, so we are seeing Western, I think, Western and to, to a certain extent perhaps also uh, the, this, the mixtures of Western and Chinese uh, uh, um, understandings as, as challenged. We are, as I think, the re some of the reasons for and some of uh, for the re-traditionalization we are seeing and re-conservation uh, we are seeing in China, in Europe, maybe also in the Arctic, is something I spoke to a, a colleague about at, uh, at Fudan when I was here last on Friday, it's uncertainty. The 21st century, I think, is characterized by enormous uncertainty because of all these changes. Uncertainty in Europe, which is influencing all the election results. Uncertainty in China, which is influencing or has an impact on why you find it important to reintroduce uh, Confucian values and Confucian relations to, to secure stability, and why it is also so important to keep up the one-party system uh, which you have in China. I think it is that the, the issues of stability seem to be of extreme importance in many parts of the world at the moment many, many parts. And, and the way people seem to try to secure stability is to return to what actually go very far back in history, very far back in history. Um, I, uh, I am of the generation uh, who, uh, who got access to university education at a time when not everybody was sure that women's had the brain to do so. So, uh, so I am a bit concerned about the, the Chinese consequences of this uh, um, uh, hierarchy, of the reintroduction of this hierarchy, if it is being reintroduced. But I think to some extent it is being reintroduced. Not only, not only in China, beware. I mean, think of what we, what are the messages from the present U.S. Uh, uh, administration. It, this is this is also very general. These are very general uh, ideas that if you return to the past, you recreate stability. And then, and with that, you recreate welfare, and you recreate the well-being. Maybe that is so. Maybe it's not so. So much. One of the things we're seeing is uh, uh, a change. We, I, I already mentioned the high divorce rates in uh, in the Nordic countries. I've never been able to find out the divorce rates in China, even though I've talked to statisticians. I think it's almost a, a, an issue of uh, security 
and, and it's considered, I mean, divorce is instability. Although we can see in the Nordic countries that we can have a divorce rate of 50, which is considerable, and, we, and the, the, the society is not falling apart. It is actually functioning quite well, surprisingly well, you could say. Uh, it, is, uh, it is functioning, of course, because of the welfare state. If we didn't have a welfare state, it wouldn't function so well. And we wouldn't have so many children as we have. I mean, compared to China, we don't have, we don't have many children, but we have more children uh, in the Nordic countries. So, so we are seeing families changing, and we are seeing, and this is what this slide is about, we are seeing work changing and the introduction of the precariat. How many of you have heard of the precariat? You have not heard of the precariat. Anybody, you have heard about it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, okay. The precariat is a, is a concept coined by a former ILO economist guy standing. He was working with the ILO, the International Labor Organization, consisting of states, employers associations and uh, employees associations uh, unions for 30 years and he, so he has been witnessing the development of the labor market and he says what we are seeing in this labor market is a new stru uh, class structure emerging we're going from the class structure of industrial society of stable work stable wages stable housing Stable families also, it doesn't write a lot about stable families, but all these stabilities go together. We are now entering into a period of unstable work. We are entering into a period where he says the new norm, not the exception, is uncertain and volatile labor, whereas the proletarian norm was habituating to stable labor the grandfathers of many and grandparents of many of you in this room, the precariat is being habituated to unstable labor. Labor instability is central to global capitalism. The precariat's consciousness is linked to a search for security outside the workplace. Security outside the workplace. I, this is, I think this is a search going on at the moment, and I think we've not reached an end to this. But I, I don't. I know that the precariat is is uh, is also uh, uh, present in uh, in China. Uh, but I think that what you are seeing is that people are working very very hard. Young people are working very very hard for their education, which used to give them stable and privileged labor, but which does, that does not necessarily, uh, or that is not necessarily the case anymore. With a university education, you can become part of the precarious labor force today. Very much so in Europe, but I think increasingly so also in in uh, China. So you work very hard as on this uh, <coughs> stage photography, which I saw some years ago in, uh, at an exhibition in Denmark. You can see all these students with all their loads of books who are working, 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 working themselves to death or exhaustion. And uh, 
what I mean, it's it's what is this a description of? What it is I well you can you can discuss because there are no authoritative uh, interpretations of images. So there are many ways to interpret this. But I think it is something when I show this also to Western students, they can also recognize this, this exhaustion of having to work, 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 and not be completely sure where it, what it's leading to. So, um, so what you see in China, which uh, a guy standing writes about in relation to the precariat, is here, especially in the second uh, part, China had in, in 2012, which seems like ages ago, but it's only five years ago, uh, it had these 34 million urban factory workers earning on average $2 an hour, <coughs> with a further 65 million in town and village enterprises earning 64 cents an hour, and 675 million workers available everywhere. Perhaps, he says, the outstanding feature of labor market restructuring is a continuing rise of labor migration, and labor migration in China is precarious labor. You don't have rights, you don't have hukou, you don't, your children don't have rights, you don't have access to hospitals, to education, to a lot of different things without the hukou. So, so because of China's internal system, China is also producing uh, insecurity and, and a precariat which is, uh, we, we do not know at the moment, I think, we do not know what the consequences of this uh, emergence of a precariat in the West and here will be for the stability of societies and for the future of uh, welfare. So these are, these are enormous challenges uh, and they lead to to uh, what the uh, uh, Polish uh, author Sigmund Baumann has written about in a number of books before he died in the beginning of this century. Look at all this liquidity. Liquid modernity, liquid love, liquid life, liquid fear, liquid times, living in an age of uncertainty. That is his analysis, his Polish UK uh, analysis of the development of this century, this enormous fluid situation we are in, and I think it goes especially for, uh, for young people, but not only for young people. What is the consequence of that for well-being and normative orders? To some extent, I think it is an exhausted generation. The guy who, who sent me an email yesterday, he suggested last year when I met him in, in Beijing that I should read a book by Neil Postman, who is an American uh, uh, sociologist, who in 1984 wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He told me a lot of Chinese were, were reading this book now, which has become... Uh, uh, translated into Chinese uh, because in China you to some extent perhaps also see yourselves as uh, amusing yourselves to death behind all these screens. Uh, everybody is behind all the time. Um, what, what, what does that 
that uncertainty and that, that sort of amusement, what does that mean uh, for, uh, uh, for this, 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 the societies we are in? I don't think anybody knows, really. I don't think the top of the Chinese Communist Party knows. Because where would they know from? Who, who would be able to tell them? Who would be able to tell them about the, the, the consequences of this? I don't think any European politicians or EU politicians know. Guy Standing is traveling around now and speaking about the precariat. Bauman was speaking about this liquidity. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I would like to uh, be a bit optimistic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will and come to uh, the optimism <laughs> at the end. <laughs> and that's uh, because I think you're completely right about this insecurity, which is really part of the 21st century. But I would say. Um, I would also call the 21st century the century of communication. Absolutely. And relationships. Absolutely. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm traveling, I dare say, thousands of kilometers in the Shanghai metro <laughs> and in the Shanghai, in the Chinese country, on, you know, by train. And I can, but especially in the metro, we are so many people every morning. Yes. You cannot even close the doors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But people are completely calm. They are. And they, they are. know why? Because they exactly. all have contact with somebody they know. They I all have contact with somebody they feel safe about. They have this out of six persons sitting in every row. Five of them will be looking in there. Absolutely. I yeah. went on the metro the other night and yeah. I noticed it completely. It's really, and, and uh, I, I would say people would get anxious and aggressive if they did not have their phones, which means they really feel safe. They are in contact with somebody they know. And you can sometimes, it's wonderful to look at, you can see people smile so lovely. <laughs> To the words written and to the person who gave a message, and I mean, I give, get messages from my young friends, and and I every time I think of myself, life is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, I really think this communication issue absolutely will will actually solve or save us from from this insecurity, which is massive, of course, but but. People are in a contact with each other that can change things very quickly to the better. Yes. Also. Yeah. Sometimes. Yes. Yeah. No. 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 But I. I think I agree. I, that, as I said, that was my experience in Greenland. Also, this sort of communicative. Uh, what can I call it? Capability. Yeah. Enormous. Enormous uh, capability, and uh, and that is very strong in Chinese society. Also. But you see it all over. You see it all over. And I know you're a doctor, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I have, have also been thinking, because I've also been talking about that, I've also been thinking about the screens as sedatives. I think you call them sedatives. Yes, yeah, you can say so. Yeah. 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 It's a way to keep people calm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's safe to feel safe. I really, I, 
and harmonious, perhaps. <laughs> and harmonious. You have all this injustice and all this inequality, and this is from Wikipedia, you know. And what do you introduce? You introduce harmonious society to deal with, not communication, but you int introduce a concept which uh, is perhaps not as sort of uh, fluid as communication. But uh, yes, I will have to, I only have a few slides left. Oh, this one, this was a book, book I published some years ago. Uh, I was in Beijing and I got this uh, image uh, of this, uh, is, what is this? I don't know how many lawyers there are here. Uh, what is this? Let, let some of the lawyers uh, tell me what this is. Yeah, what is this? Well, I call that something very radical. I don't think that's what is the situation of same-gender marriages in China. <laughs> this is, this, yes? A demonstration? Mm. Yeah, sort of that. Yeah, sort mm. of a demonstration. It looks, it looks as if it's a same-sex marriage, doesn't it? It is not, of course, because it's not allowed in China. But it is a mock-up. It's a, or uh, I, was, I was attending a moot court last yes. night. This is like a moot marriage. It's something, it's not a marriage itself, but it's like presenting something as if. Yeah. Something which you do not have yet, but I dare bet that you will have it in less than 10 years. Maybe five. Maybe five. The, Ch the, the Vatican now lives with same-sex uh, relationships in Italy, so I think the Communist Party will also be able to live with it. <laughs> but actually, so, of course, of the, the law, so you cannot register it. But if you do that, so no one just come to you, just try to separate you. So there's one case in, the, in Hunan province, actually two men they got, go to the marriage, but were rejected, and then they go to the court. And then causes because okay, so our now current law says one man and a woman get married, so mm, to make mm, mm, mm. And then if they can, they do not do that, they, because officially cannot register. No, no, no. But they have a very big the wedding ceremony. Exactly. There are several of these. Yes, places. and then they actually just try to contact the others in the yes. other cities. Just yes, do yes, the same. Yes, yes. So yeah, so people are doing these mock marriages, which are not formally legal. Yeah. But they are part of the process, yeah. which will make it legal yeah. at some point in the future, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, so um, uh, this, I think, is another uh, element which will change uh, the future and will, which is related to to uh, to welfare and well-being. The issue of the environment, as as this uh, teacher said to me at, at uh, uh, when I gave this other lecture. So. You will probably know, at least some of you, that this was, uh, this is a, a um, this self-finance video by the Chinese journalist released in t 2015, downloaded by 300 million people, or downloaded 300 million times, which even for China is a considerable number. So. That is also, this is, this is also in a way, it's not like the mock marriage, but it's something, it's somebody doing something on her own and releasing it to the world and telling the world that here is a problem, which I'm sure has an impact 
on. And it, it, again, it's part of the communication because this is spread uh, uh, all over. So uh, let me, uh, this is a, uh, uh, since you are Norwegian, I kept this, or half Norwegian, or I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I kept this slide, which is a really from, uh, from something I, I worked on in Norway some years ago. And Norway has a, a ritual of, of uh, allowing foreigners into Norwegian society, making them part of the community, giving them, uh, giving them access also to the welfare. Uh, and they have this book which, uh, uh, which you get when you get the Norwegian citizen, welcome as a new citizen. In this book, you find this, qua this quote, the book is in Norwegian, and English probably. Uh, how shall a society with a very uniform ethnic and cultural tradition, and this here is, it's, the talk is about Norway, function as a multicultural community in a globalized world? And you could probably ask also about China. How shall China, which focuses so much on uniformity, function in a multicultural, globalized society? I think that will be a challenge for the Chinese society in, in the years to come. But not already, it's already had. Of yes, course, yes, it is yeah. already there. Yeah, but, yeah, they, yeah. but I would think it would be, this is becoming a challenge all over. So what is this woman? I'm not quite sure, but the, uh, the, the photographer is a Greenlandic woman who has made a lot of, of uh, photographs of people. Uh, so you have here, what, what flag? The Norwegian flag. The Norwegian flag. What is this woman? Asian, probably Asian. She could be Greenlander. She could be because Greenlanders look Asian. Yeah. She could also be Korean. Yes. I don't know where she comes from, but I. But what you can see is her, the way this uh, this uh, for a photographer artist brings together this hybridity into the uh, 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 into this image, which will be one of the big challenges of welfare as we knew it in the 20th century. We cannot expect people to look alike anymore, live the same lives, etc., etc. But there is hope. Um, there is, this is the exhibition by Björn Nørgaard. Some of you who are uh, know about Denmark will know he has been working with Chinese artists for 10, 15 years, I think, for many, many years. And I saw this uh, exhibition in Copenhagen in 2015. It, he called it the origins of the future. I think that's interesting to speak about the origins of the future, which is, of course, now also. And his idea is that if we bring together tradition and modernity, there will be hope. There will be hope for a development of something which is for the benefit, for the welfare, for the well-being of, uh, of people uh, in the world. And if I were to look at something and say that there is something which can give us this hope at this moment, it could be the UN uh, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And I think that there are many of us in the Western world who are very grateful uh, to China for not having left the Paris Accord this year. 
when uh, uh, US President Trump left the Paris Accord and whatever he's leaving has left since and is going to leave uh, in the future as long as he's in. Um, so I think the fact, I was, I was attending the uh, 2009 uh, 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 COP15 in Copenhagen, uh, 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 which the 15th COP, which was not really successful, but I, I don't think it was as unsuccessful as it, as it was described to be. It paved the way. Things take time. Changes take time. Positive changes take perhaps even longer. Uh, so I think that we are in a that the fact that we're in a situation at the moment where the world has decided on these common goals to be realized within less than, less than 15 years, that I think is a sign of something, of, of, of considerable optimism. And I think it's some, also a, uh, a situation where big and small can, can contribute in different ways. The Greenlanders are very happy about the climate change because it gives them new opportunities. Uh, no, that's true. You know, there are different ways of looking at different uh, uh, um, developments in the world. So I think what this is telling us is perhaps that, that, that the, the welfare and the well-being, which is more individual, I think, than the welfare uh, of the 21st century is something we have to fight for, is something we have to give form, which doesn't have a form yet because we're, we're looking very much towards the tradition. But we also have to look towards the modern and the future to see the origins of the future of uh, welfare. Thank you very much. It's four o'clock. <laughs> And we still have time for some yeah, yes, minute, absolutely, right? absolutely. Who wants to? What about you, Vincent? Don't you want to ask me something? <laughs> <laughs> this is um, a method I'm using. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I can try to ask one question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm most impressed by um, how you put, um, how, how you describe uh, most young people who live, let's say, in a in a globalized and modernized world where their anxiety and insecurity come from. And I think me, myself, is a perfect ex example because I do not, even though I work here, I do not have a Shanghai Google, which means yeah. um, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's something mm -hmm. I need to Yeah, consider. sure. Um, but do you have any, let's say, um, mm. anything you can propose? Mm. I, I, uh, I think I can suggest to you to read Guy Standing's uh, book on the precariat or, or the precariat charter because uh, I, I didn't have time to go into that. But Guy Standing did, uh, diversifies uh, uh, between three different groups of uh, the precariat. The old industrial workers who are losing the way the security they had. Uh, I think uh, there's an in-between group and then there's a group of young people who, did, who do not want to live the way their, their parents or grandparents lived, and who cannot either, but who are, who are thinking of organizing their life, their work, uh, their probably the, the, the way they, their worldview probably also, in, in a new way. Um, 
I think this is happening with young people uh, in the, the generation. I'm beginning in Europe, I'm calling them the post-financial uh, crisis generation because the post-financial crisis generation is the generation that the generations before saw that everything was getting better. The post-financial generation crisis knows that they cannot be living the ways their parents, and they do not necessarily want to do so either. So they, I think, are, are beginning to think of themselves and their, and their relation to the world as something, uh, something different. And, I, and they are beginning to look for security, search for security in new ways. Some of it perhaps in relationships, of longer or shorter uh, 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 duration, uh, some of it in, in, in patterns of work where you do, uh, if, if I take my own family for instance, my nieces, she did, she, she, when she was 13 she worked on film, then she began studying geography, then she became interested in the environment and food production and food and things like that. So she did a lot of, of uh, experiments. We worked on experiments of the, the city of Copenhagen, which wants to use its waste more, uh, more wisely. And then she, now she's going back to education. She lives on very little money. You have to live on very little money for that. But you get some support from your grandmother and your parents and your this and your that and your partner, etc., etc. So you can make it. And you are you're sort of building up a completely different type of education because it's not you like being a lawyer and you go from A to B. No, you go like zigzag. You get some information here, some there, some there, some there, and you bring it together via communication also. And, the, um, and, and, and you create new patterns, I think, including probably patterns of security and patterns of, uh, of uh, well-being also. So I, I do not have an answer to that, but I think, uh, of course I don't, uh, but uh, I think you have to work for the answer and you have to experiment. I think the experimentation is, is important. And uh, maybe if, if, we, if we look for the old models of security and stability, that would be quite difficult to find. You have to look for them in, in new places, perhaps. Going to new places like you did and learn a new language and be in a new, see what, what can be done, yeah? Um, well, I was just wondering, because a big part of you also talked about communication and how communication makes you feel safer and it connects more people. But then when you combine it with personal well-being, and especially if you talk about the younger generation, then you also have this other level of communication where you're actually saying that it's becoming more superficial um, and so in a sense that it creates a sort of a, a, a superficial feeling of safety because you're not actually really communicating together. So how do you see these two different levels or ideas of communication? Like how do you see them play in together with each other and how would it affect the well-being of mm, generation? Mm, mm. Uh, I wrote an article some uh, years ago uh, called Surface Law. And it was inspired by my daily bicycle rides, because at some point I, I began to notice that a lot of, especially well, women I think of all ages, they would have large prints on their trousers. 
which they didn't have before. They had these like I have, monochrome. Everything is monochrome. Um, but, but they were beginning to have these prints. This was, in a way, cheap material. So the, the, the prints, the new patterns, you could say, were only on the surface, uh, but they're beautiful nonetheless. And they sort of enliv give, give life to the conditions. So what I'm perhaps trying to say is that maybe it's not that superficiality is maybe not necessarily so bad or so critical, uh, something to be so critical of, that superficiality also allows for new patterns, for new links, uh, for, uh, I mean, you cannot know everybody for 40 years, I mean, or in your, in your case, <laughs> 20 or 50, 10 even, but you can, you can build up over, over a period of time, you can build up a feeling or uh, of net networks, as it's called, which I think are contributing to a certain sense of security. Perhaps, perhaps um, since I, I read a book on eye slaves re uh, recently on how we are all becoming dependent on our computers, uh, not just the, the people who produce them, but also our, all of us who are using it, we are becoming eye slaves ourselves. So of course it's something we have to be aware of. It's something we need to need to uh, to work with. We, we may have to be become more aware of how the restrictions, the need for restrictions, uh, uh, useful, beneficial, reasonable restrictions, which people can understand and follow. Um, so I think I, I mean you you are the new gnome makers to a large degree. You're not the new lawmakers, but the lawmakers don't, uh, I mean, what laws do the lawmakers make? They are, the Danish lawmakers are now discussing to make a law uh, forbidding the burqa, which nobody wears. So, or 20 women are wearing them. So, uh, so, so you may think of yourself as the ones who are producing the new norms, which will then later sort of spread also, as uh, uh, what you said, Vincent, to 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 uh, develop into something which gives you a combination of flexibility, because I think this is what uh, what the young generation are asking for to a very large degree, combined with a perhaps a new understanding of, of security. You don't have to be married for sixty years to feel uh, secure. I mean. Maybe three years is enough. Maunus, <laughs> 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 yeah, and then you. Well, I, you actually just touched on what I was going to ask about. It was more sort of the um, the way communication communication tools, social media, mm. WeChat, mm. or Facebook, mm. or whatever, mm. are designed today, are designed not really for communication purposes, but for distracting you as much as possible, to put mm. as much attention as possible mm. into uh, the apps. Yeah. I just yeah. deleted my Facebook from my phone, and of course I wrote a status update on Facebook about having done that, because you're addicted to the mm -hmm. feedback to the reaction, of getting yeah. notifications. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, you already sort of touched upon it with your, what mm -hmm. you just said. Mm -hmm. But that is a way of creating new norms. Okay, I don't want to be here. I will restrict my time on Facebook, for instance, or whatever. 
Um, yeah. Um, I think one of the arguments you brought up this, for this lecture is uh, how we combine tradition and modernism together to create something that's to do with insecurity. And also, that's I think um, that's what I'm, I was arguing in my thesis, in my master thesis as well, because I was uh, I studied uh, mythology. So when I thought of mythology, yeah, oh, interesting, I, I mm -hmm. mythology and how is it was the narrative under the perspective of postmodern. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was trying to argue that it's a combination of tradition and modernity is yeah. the way to answer this question. And I was wondering, what do you think of the tradition? Like, what forms of tradition is it? Is it a value, a concept, or a sort of ritual? And in what way we can? Because in modern society, it's people who lost. Some people they felt there is the lack of connection with the tradition that makes them feel lost and insecure. And, and what do you think of? What forms of tradition, or um, what, what, what we can actually do about it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, there was one tradition uh, which I uh, came across in uh, in Greenland, which I thought was uh, was not familiar to me, uh, uh, and which I came across amongst the students. The students were mainly women, as in all developing countries uh, and in all countries. Uh, and several of them were, were uh, somewhat older. So several of them would be foster mothers. They would not, be, uh, they would not have adopted children, because that is not a tradition. You, you do not give up children for, uh, for adoption. You do not, in, in Greenlandic tradition, you do not adopt. But several of these women would have these foster children. So they would have children to whom they would have responsibilities and long-standing relations. I mean, the intergenerational relations are also very important relations, which also get security, I think, to a certain extent, and meaning to life. Uh, uh, and I thought, mm, uh, it's just coming to my mind now that you speak that, that uh, in a way, I think it's a, it's a very flexible model. You don't say, okay, this is now my child, old style biology or something. But it is a, it is a, it is a responsible but still flexible relationship, which gives uh, meaning and perspective uh, to life back, but also force. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I mean, with all these divorces we're having, I think we will have to think much more. Um, uh, in, Creatively about uh, intimate relationships in the world, and uh, and I would be very surprised if you don't already have quite a lot of this in China. I have this time. I this time I have. I told you about my niece before. What I didn't the one with the with the, with all these different um, different uh, education. What I didn't tell you was that she lives in a lesbian relationship which I think is a very stabilizing relationship. No, I'm serious. Very stabilizing. It's gone on for three years or more. I'm sure it will go on for much longer because then they now have property together and all these stabilizing things. Uh, so, uh, um, and this time, I, this is just something I'm claiming. 
I have no evidence for this. But I have come across a number of women in Shanghai this time, which I thought, these are lesbian women. <laughs> I, did, I, I have not realized that before. And I think I'm seeing it at the hotel where I'm staying, when they come from weekends, etc. I think this is going on, legal or not. It's going on as practices, as actual social practices. There will be problems related to the family, but there will also be benefits. Of, I mean, if you can marry a woman, you can, of course, live together, two men or two, children, two women, or how many, I mean, whatever type of, of, of relationship uh, <laughs> you're thinking of. So, so uh, and, and people live with, I mean, well, uh, uh, the animals, I mean, how many people live with their animals in the Western world? Many, many, and, and that is also increasing in China. The number of pets is increasing in China, I remember, I think it was in Beijing when I was there two years ago. I saw somebody walking her pig. Yeah, no, it's quite common. And they call the 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 pig is just the sow or the mummy sow yeah, yeah, and the yeah, dog yeah. something like that. Yeah, but that is that. So here you have the relations. Yeah, yeah. They, they, and these very important relations for yeah, people, emotional, etc. You may not like it, but they are there. Yeah. Is that? Somewhat of a, an, uh, <laughs> an answer to your, yeah? Anyone, yes? Yeah, so I was wondering, you mentioned that uh, like these uh, small communities can be like very powerful mm. politically. So um, how do you like, I mean, regulate that? So it, it means, well, well, I'm interested in like environmental legislation, so what it, like, in legislative that means it's really hard to govern these so what do you think, what will in future, uh, will be the, the role of legislators and also what is the role of like legal scholars? Because this would mean that we need to at least some way develop our methods to be more pluralistic or something. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I don't know if there is the discussion in Denmark, same as Finland, that we are talking about the, like, the death of legal dogmatics. Yeah. So I have I have actually I have felt the death of legal dogmatics for thirty years. I yeah. must say so. <laughs> so I am uh, I don't I I think the legal scholars may survive, but maybe even if legislation becomes less important, because there is we were talking about that today. We were we were taking a, a walk in the parks in the People's Park and in the Lushun Park. And parks are, I once gave, I gave another presentation on gardens of justice. Gardens are, uh, are pieces of nature which are ordered to a very large degree by the people who produce them. They, they, they give order, they give pleasure, they give peace, they give many of the things which we also think uh, law is giving and legislation is giving. Many of these things come from other sources as well. So there seems to be the kind of conflict between that you definitely want to have some kind of like stability, but then again you should ac accept some kind of uncertainty because of both. And or flexibility. Yeah. I think you, if you have too much stability, you will have stagnation. Yeah. And yeah. things will crack yeah, so because yeah. it will become too, too, too rigid. 
if you perhaps have too much flexibility, there will be fear of chaos. But I think what we are talking about is an enormous challenge for Western lawyers. I don't think it's such a big challenge for Chinese lawyers because you have a longer and a much more sort of non-legislative tradition to draw upon, the the, uh, tradition of customs, which can be uh, uh, criticized, et cetera. But the the legislative heritage, you could say, is very much a heritage of the 20th century. And the 20th century is over. I, and we have to also go, I heard a very famous uh, uh, Finnish uh, uh, theorist, Carlo Tuori, um, uh, a month ago uh, in, at a conference in Denmark, and he said, he spoke about legal pluralism. I, pluralism is very important, but actually I am beginning to think, after having worked with legal pluralism for since the the 90s when I I wrote my dissertation. I think we have to look for the similarities in the world we live in today, which is a small world in the universe. I went to the observatory in Shishan, where I am. Uh, So it's it's quite small in the universe. We have to look for the similarities amongst us, I think, and the responsibilities amongst us also. And that's why I am very optimistic about coming to China again and again in over 30 years, because I feel that it's e- more and more it's easier to talk together. It's easier to understand each other. We have much more in common, oh, and we feel we have it in common than we had uh, 50 years ago. I think this will be the final question. I must or, say, I have had many comments. You have Sorry, had many comments, yes. No, but what I will say is that while you are asking your question, if anybody else is going yeah. to ask a question, please raise your hand. Otherwise, I think, yeah, fine. Okay, you, but yeah. let me hear you. Then I would like to, um, to comment on what you say, that we are getting more and more similar. And you talk about the death of legal dogmatics, but I can tell you it's the same, the death of medical dogmatics. It's going on all over. It's going on. And being in China is so wonderful yeah. because the Chinese medicine exactly. will be such a big part yeah. of the global yes. medical thinking yes. in the future. I, yes. And it tells so much about, it is so... It's such a, a completely, it fits so well into our new way of thinking um, medi- mm. in medicine. Mm. For instance, uh, fighting cancer with, uh, um, you know, uh, all kinds of toxic agents and uh, radiation, mm. and mm. that's completely old fashioned. It kills the person and it kills the cancer, mm. but it also kills mm. the person. Mm. Mm. But but you can treat cancer in, in quite another way. Mm. And the Chinese medicine is a very, very important part of this development. Yeah. It's extremely interesting for me to be in China and mm. watch how much the Chinese medicine has to give. Yeah, yeah. I know I agree. And that I have I have been thinking since the end of the twentieth century. I've been thinking China will be taking over. Yes. Uh, yes. No, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in, uh, in terms of the knowledge, knowledge, tradition. traditions, yeah. uh, etc. Yeah. 
size, sheer size, etc., but also models. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why all these dogmatics are being killed now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. And, it's, and, we, and if you are a young researcher, what's your name? Um, you, you had better give it up quickly. <laughs> because you have to work on this for in this field for many years from now, <laughs> so so don't drown yourself in that. Uh, no, it's true. It is a it is an enormous challenge, and it is an enormous creative force. Also, yeah. that is that is. So maybe I should not. Maybe I should speak less about similarities and more about cooperation. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I totally agree that living uh, in China is a really wonderful thing. Okay, and uh, first of all, uh, I really appreciate your effort for uh, giving us uh, such uh, extraordinary lecture, and I really learned about really learned a lot. And uh, from what is from what we discussed above, uh, I'd like to say something different about one phenomenon that is uh, uh, most uh, Chinese stu students or people uh, are always playing their mobile phone uh, 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 or any time or anywhere. But uh, sometimes, um, uh, for me, for my perspective, I think uh, it's not because that uh, uh, we want to seek, seek, uh, seek safe. Uh, maybe it's just because we want to learn something. On our mobile phone, mm -hmm. and also uh, maybe for workers or students, uh, they need to do with their works uh, just uh, by their mobile phone, and they do their online work. Uh, I think it's count. I don't think it uh, reflects that uh, we want to think safe uh, by our mobile phone. So I think it's just uh, maybe it can reflect that uh, our uh, our our. Internet is uh, has developed more, and uh, we can do a lot of things by our mobile phone. And uh, we uh, maybe we can read um, some um, passages, or we can read some articles, or learn something new. So maybe I think uh, not just to say, uh, just uh, like you say, uh, we want to think safe by the, our mobile phone. Is maybe just uh, one little part. Mm. I am not. I am not anti-technology at all. <laughs> no, no. I told you I had this enormous feeling of an opening of the world when I, when I experienced the uh, internet in Greenland, and everybody sort of embraced it. it like in China, I think it's a, com a completely new world and a new worldview. I think, but I think with many things, if you if you're very enthusiastic about it, at some point. There are backsides to everything, uh, and at some point you will also have to face those backsides, either about the addiction or the production or whatever, and, and perhaps the restriction. I mean, should I go off Facebook? Should I limit my use to three hours or six hours or what, how much a day? Or should I do, do some old-style analog dialogue? Uh, uh, or something like that. So, so it's it, it, again a combination of, of forms. So it's not it's not I'm not criticizing because this this is not only happening in China. This is happening everywhere. Go to the Paris Metro and everybody will sit there with their. It's all over. It's uh, so so um, yeah. But these are fashions which come and go. And at some point, all these fashions are 
will recede or get into a more sort of stable uh, condition. Okay, thank you so much for allowing me to come here and talk to you on what is my birthday? Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> 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 and uh, you had told me Chinese eat noodles on their birthday to get very old. I am very old already. I learned from the Greenlanders that it's not necessarily important to become very old, but to have a good life while you're there. <laughs> so, so I wish you all a good life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.